Today is Reformation Sunday. When Calvin was called to Geneva by Farrell, he was there for only a few years before his personality, which was rather uh, abrasive, you could say, as Calvin is sometimes known for, uh, was uh, exiled from Geneva, kicked out by the city fathers. Uh, They did not see uh, his ministry as being beneficial, but only two years later, under desperate uh, circumstances as they were being persecuted uh, by the Catholic Church in a nearby uh, town, he was called back. And when he assumed the pulpit that next Sunday, after having been gone for two years, he picked up at the very same text that he left off on. He, uh, uh, because one of the principles of the Reformation that was encouraged was called lectia continua, or continual reading, uh, what we might call exposition or expository preaching. And that way the Reformers could work their way systematically through each book of the Bible, opening it up and applying it to the people. And Calvin was so committed to that, that even though two years went by, he picked up exactly where he left off. So it seemed odd to me on Reformation Sunday for me to do something different than my series through John. It seemed that it would not fit with the tenor of the Reformation. So providentially, this text actually fits quite well with the theme of the Reformation. So as we continue in John... The division that we have been looking at in John 7 over Jesus, is Jesus the Christ, is kind of the large question that has been facing these crowds and the Pharisees and that John is confronting us with, uh, is Jesus the Christ? Um, And the question this morning as we look at verses 40 through 52, wrapping up this this, uh, scene of Jesus at the Feast of Booths, the question is, who gets to decide if Jesus is the Christ or not? How do we evaluate the criteria that's there present in Jesus? The evidence that's laid out, the crowd is is conflicted. They have a little bit of skepticism. They're questioning whether he is the Christ or maybe he's the prophet. And the Pharisees say, definitely he is not the Christ. He does not meet the criteria for what they think the Christ should be. And so the question is, who gets to decide? Is this a a democratic process where the will of the masses decides that Jesus has the right material and then they sort of put him forward as the most likely candidate for Christ? Or do the religious elite the rulers of Israel and its prominent theologians, the Pharisees, do they get to decide? And the crux of this debate is who has the authority to interpret the Scriptures? Is this something that ordinary saints can do? Or only the clergy? Has God revealed Himself so that all His people can understand what is necessary for salvation and faith and life? Or... Did he give us intermediaries, go-betweens, and they must interpret the scriptures for us? 
When it comes to Jesus, how can we evaluate whether or not he is the Christ and who gets to decide? Let's stand together out of reverence for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ as we continue picking up where we left off at John 7, beginning at verse 40. It is also printed for you in your bulletin. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, who said to them, Why did you not bring him? And the officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. And the Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and Father, as we come to this portion of your word, And we remember our history as Protestants, as those who are heirs to the Reformation. We pray for wisdom, not only to understand what you are teaching us through your Holy Spirit here, that Jesus is the Christ, but also, Father, may we see the importance of the Word of God. May its centrality in our own lives be made evident, and may we champion the causes of the Reformation that returned it into our hands. For we pray this in Jesus' strong name, and amen. Amen. You may be seated. After Jesus finished giving his sermonette, calling people to come to him and drink, in verses 37 through 39, the crowds began to marvel and debate. Groups form as the crowds divide over Jesus. Some are sure he is the prophet, just as crowds had done earlier when Jesus fed the 5,000 with a few loaves of bread. These crowds seem to identify Jesus with a Moses-like figure that was prophesied in Deuteronomy 18. He had taken them... uh, who. He had led Israel through the wilderness in the Exodus, and he had uh, provided, or it wasn't him, it was from the Lord, but it got attributed to him. He had given them bread in the wilderness to sustain them and water from the rock. And now Jesus is doing the same thing, leading Israel in a new Exodus, freeing them from Roman oppression, or so they hoped, right? They see in Jesus a Moses-like figure. He does the same types of things that Moses does. He, he gives us bread from heaven, and now he provides water. Maybe this is the prophet. 
that Moses talked about. Maybe this is the one who will lead us in a new exodus. But the others said, no, he is the Christ. Maybe at this point in their history, they have distinguished between the prophet and, and the Christ. Uh, this is a different figure than that the crowds have in mind. And maybe they're thinking about David. While the prophet and the priest and the king were all anointed, and Christ just means anointed, it came most often to be identified with the king who was anointed. David is the preeminent type of an Israelite king. And according to God's covenant with David, he promised he would one day place on David's throne an eternal son who would rule forever and ever. Psalm 2 and Psalm 72, and of course, God's promise, God's covenant promise to David in 2 Samuel 7 all bring out those qualities of a son that would be forever on David's throne. But, but others in the crowd say that this can't be because the scriptures say that Christ will come from Bethlehem. Now, John does not mention that Jesus is born in Bethlehem. We don't get a birth narrative story about Jesus. John has access to the other, what we call the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Those tell, especially Matthew and Luke, tell of Jesus' birth that he was, in fact, born in Bethlehem, but that he, for fear of persecution because of Herod, fled to Egypt and, in fulfillment of Scripture, returned to Israel, but settled in Nazareth because persecution was still strong. So he's not technically from Nazareth. He was born in Bethlehem because his father, Joseph, and his Mary are both from Judah and went to be registered Right, because of the census, the Roman census, and returned the, to their familial lands. Well, uh, perhaps because Jesus comes onto the stage later in his life, he's approximately 30 years old when he begins to minister, people do not know of his origins, where he came from. Remember, throughout the feast, they've been speculating about these origins. But John is not concerned about Bethlehem. Why? Because he wants them to see a greater origin. Where is Jesus really from? He's from the Father. He came as the Word made flesh to dwell amongst us, to reveal the Father to us. And John is not concerned that he came from Bethlehem because John wants them to see that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. But this crowd is divided over Jesus. You might call this the court of popular appeal. Does Jesus fit the categories that they have neatly created for the identity of Christ? Some, it seems, are genuinely seeking answers. They want to know. Others remain skeptical. But what's really interesting is the exchange between the temple officers and the authorities in verse 45 through the rest of the text. If we recall, the authorities sent the temple guards to arrest Jesus because, because the crowds were thinking Jesus was the Christ, largely because the authorities didn't tell him to be quiet. Remember, he's standing up in the temple and he's teaching them and he's teaching them authoritatively and the crowds are listening, they're watching, and they're also looking at the authorities. And the authorities are not saying anything. They're not telling him to be quiet. 
They're not shutting him up. And so they reasoned, maybe the authorities believe he is the Christ. Well, the Pharisees began to realize that this is what's happening. And so they sent the temple guards to go and arrest him. And perhaps what's happening is that all throughout the rest of the feast, remember Jesus didn't go up in the beginning. He went up midway through the feast. And it isn't until the last day of the feast that he stands up and and gives his water of life sermon. So during that whole time of the feast, seven or eight days, there was no opportunity for the temple guards to arrest Jesus. Perhaps they feared the crowds or, or, as they say, this man, in verse, uh, in verse 45, they questioned him, why did you not bring him? The answer, no one ever spoke like this man. And that's the very center of this text. No one ever spoke like this man. They realized that Jesus was something much more than an upstart rabbi trying to draw people away from the truth. They realized that he wasn't necessarily threatening the Pharisees and their, uh, their authority to interpret the word of God, but he was speaking with an authority that came from beyond him. Matthew and, and Luke get at this, I think, a little bit better when they said he spoke not like the scribes, but with authority. That's what's happening here. Something about Jesus, his person, but especially the way and things that he spoke convinced them that it would be wiser to go back to their employers without him. Do you notice that? They're willing to risk that. That's how much they are taken with Jesus, either with the words that he spoke or his very person. They're willing to go back to their employers empty-handed. Now, of course, the authorities are incensed at this, and they resort to what most people who don't really have grounds for being upset resort to, and that's name-calling, right? They have, if the officers have concluded that Jesus is the Christ, then it's because they are just as ignorant and stupid as the lower-class crowds, They actually pronounce a curse on the crowds for their assessment of Jesus, which they attribute to them being deceived, right? These people don't know anything. They're ignorant of the law, and you're acting just like them. However, to conclude decisively, they bring out the most effective methods and appeal to authority. Have any authorities, or the Pharisees believed in him? That's the question we've been asking throughout this whole text. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? Their answer to that is no. None of the authorities believe that he's the Christ. None of the Pharisees believe this. Are you going to be like the ignorant masses, or are you going to accept the authority of those who know, who know better than you. The religious leaders. There's one commentator, I love to read his paraphrases. He translates them, and they they sometimes will bring out a little nuance in the text. And he says this of, of the Pharisees' response. He says, he calls the Pharisees the serious. They're the serious ones. 
you know, because they're very serious about the law. They take everything in life seriously. So I, I like that translation of the, of the Pharisees. He says, Then the serious replied to them, Don't tell us that you have been tricked too. Hey, has a single one of the leading figures believed in him or any of the serious? Oh, but this mob who don't know a thing about the Bible, to hell with them. That's what the Pharisees are saying. None of the serious believe in G- that Jesus is the Christ. None of the authorities believe in him. To hell with this crowd. They don't even know the Bible. I think that's, that gets at the crux of this matter. We've seen before, Jesus does not have the right credentials. He did not go to their seminaries, nor was he ordained in their presbytery. And on top of that, he doesn't fit the interpretation of who the Christ would be. And they claim to be the arbiters of God's word. Yet as Jesus already chided them, saying in chapter 5, you search the scriptures. He's saying this to the Pharisees. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they the Scriptures, that bear witness about me, Jesus, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. You are opening up your word and you're pouring over it and you're trying to find eternal life and I'm standing right in front of you and you miss me. You refuse to come to me for life. Because they don't care about the word, they care about their tradition. They care about a Messiah that's going to be made after their own image. And the irony is they claim to be authorities on Scripture. And yet yet they miss that Jesus is the Word of God made flesh. This scene perfectly illustrates what has been called the formal cause of the Reformation. Sola Scriptura. In Scripture alone. Before we look at how that was developed during the Reformation, let me draw your attention to these two ways of reading. I say reading because we are not in the presence of Jesus in the same way as he's in his flesh as this audience. But we still have the same question constantly put to us. Is Jesus the Christ? So there are two ways of reading or receiving Jesus. One is kind of grassroots. It uses the lens of Scripture to see Christ. And the second uses the lens of tradition or authority to interpret Scripture. And in this case, does not find uh, Jesus to fit within their notions of who the Christ should be. Any pastor, I think, would be happy to see his people making the kinds of connections that this crowd is making between their Bibles and Jesus, the Christ. But the authorities call them accursed. Why? Because they are not authorized to come to those conclusions on their own. In fact, the authorities don't think the crowds are competent to weigh in on the question of Jesus, let alone to understand the law at all. In 1559, Pope Pius IV included this statement in his index of forbidden books. Quote, Since experience teaches that if the reading of the Holy Bible 
in the vernacular is permitted generally without discrimination, more damage than advantage will result because of the boldness of men. The judgment of the bishops and the inquisitors is to serve as guide in this regard. Bishops and inquisitors may, in the accord with the counsel of the local priest and confessor, allow Catholic translations of the Bible to be read by those of whom they realize that such reading will not lead to the detriment, but to the increase of faith and piety. The permission is to be given in writing. Whoever reads or has such a translation in his possession without this permission cannot be absolved from his sins until he has turned in these Bibles. End quote. Who does that sound like? That is, you have to write, I have to write a letter to you so that you can possess a Bible. Only if I think, or the bishop, or the inquisitors, think that it would lead to an increase in faith. Did you catch that? It's more dangerous for common people to read the Bible in their own language And it can only be an authorized Catholic Bible with permission. Here we find codified the sentiments of the Pharisees and the religious leaders in Jesus' day. But the Reformers rejected this idea. Luther entered a debate that was already ongoing from the 15th century and the turmoil surrounding that period in Rome's history where multiple popes were vying for authority. At one point, there were three popes. They were all claiming that they were the right pope. This is often called the Babylonian captivity of the church, which is one of Luther's famous tracts that was printed maybe four years after he nailed the theses to the door. The fight was not over the authority of Scripture. Oftentimes we, we misunderstand what this, the crux of this debate was. Catholics and Protestants both agreed that Scripture is authoritative. The fight was over the alone statement in our sola scriptura. Now we need to be clear. Rome has changed their position on this. We don't want to create straw men and then beat them up. They have, I think, repented of this in Vatican II, and now they do allow translations in the vernacular, and you don't have to have written uh, letters that approve for this. They realize this was a mistake. But the crux of the matter remains, and that was a debate over interpretation. Central to the debate was not Scripture, but Scripture alone. Rome taught that the church's interpretation of Scripture was the only authorized interpretation. Not only did the church declare what canonical Scriptures were, they said, this is the Bible. We declare it. We declare these books to be the Bible. And they were an authority to do that. But they also declared how they should be read or what they meant Scripture alone was not the sole authority of faith and practice, but Scripture and tradition and the church's teaching. 
So when Luther, freshly converted by a newfound understanding of justification by faith alone, began to, to bristle at Rome's practice of selling indulgences, these were declarations from the church that your temporal punishment of sin was absolved. It was said that the church had access to this large bank account of merit, the merit of all the saints, and they could dispense that to those who did penance or on special occasions paid the church, which would absolve the person of temporal punishment of sins in purgatory. Now, to be fair, they were not teaching that this absolved you from eternal punishment for sin. That they clearly, uh, they clearly taught that that was done by Christ on the cross, although it was mediated through the sacraments, which became kind of a work, and along with that, the confession to a priest. Rather, this is forgiveness of temporal uh, punishment in purgatory. Now, the crux of the debate over this uh, kind of erupted over at Albert of Brandenburg. He had purchased uh, three bishoprics. This, that is, from the Pope, he bought the office of a bishop. He paid for it. Now, this is, this is a heresy. It's called simony because he sought to purchase an office of the church for his own profit. Well, to pay for his large purchase, the money that went to the Pope, the Pope was so gracious to allow him a special dispensation so that he can sell this special indulgence for eight years. And so Albert, um, because he owed so much money to the, the bankers, he hired John Tetzel to spearhead this operation. And this is uh, what the Pope had given him liberty to do. He said, quote, subscribers would enjoy a plenary and perfect remission of all sins. They would be restored to the state of innocence, which they enjoyed in baptism, and would be relieved of all the pains of purgatory, including those incurred by an offense to the divine majesty. Those securing indulgences on behalf of the dead already in purgatory need not themselves be contrite and confess their sins. So in a sense, they... uh, Tetzel was allowed to offer to the people a a certificate that said, if you pay me, your sins are remitted, you're back into the state of innocency, and this could be for someone else on their behalf, for your dead relative. And you need not have sorrow for any sin. As long as you paid, then your soul was safe. And Luther was incensed by this. Because it drew away his parishioners in Wittenberg, poor as they already are, to give money to Tetzel. To pay for these indulgences on behalf of their family members. And that led him on October 31st, 1517, to nail his 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg church. And this was a common form of debate between uh, doctors of the church. One, one other caveat needs to be said. There were others in Rome who saw that this was a great abuse. They saw this along with Luther. Although they remained true to Rome and sought to reform it from within, where, uh, and they, they saw this abuse of indulgences, it was finally condemned in the Council of Trent in the mid-16th century. But by that time, it was, it was too late. 
And the reformers solved this problem by condemning the practice altogether as being unsound because it was not based on Scripture but on tradition. And in some ways, tradition can be a good thing, and it's unavoidable. The issue was what authority does tradition have? Is it binding? Or is it on par with Scripture? Or should tradition sit underneath Scripture, able always to be scrutinized by Scripture for its consistency? What we call always reforming. Should the tradition of the church always be in need of reformation? Rome doubled down in this debate, positing something like this. The church declares the truth, tradition, concerning Scripture and its pronouncements. And the tradition, along with Scripture, are to be obeyed as the Word of God. Since the church declared what Scripture was, the canon, and how to interpret it, tradition, then the church herself was the sole source of authority. And since the Pope was the church, that meant he had the authority of the church. This is like spiritual abuse on steroids, right? Partially, this was developed to keep from having to give an account for their behavior. Pope Leo X was one of the most notoriously wicked popes ever. And that's the pope during the time of Martin Luther. He was thoroughly debauched in sexual morality and all kinds of uh, debauchery. He uh, is the one who was um, uh, responsible for um, raising the funds to... um, to build up St. Paul's uh, Cathedral in, in Rome. Now, the Reformers did not do away completely with tradition. They weren't like the Anabaptists or, or even some modern Baptists whose battle cry is, no creed but Christ. Rather, they sought to situate the tradition underneath Scripture, under the Word of God. Of course, it comes a few generations later, but they're very much in line with the Reformers. The Westminster Confession puts it this way in chapter 1, in, section, uh, in, a, in two sections. It says, The authority of the Holy Scripture, for which it ought to be believed and obeyed, dependeth not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself, the author thereof, And therefore, it is to be received because it is the word of God. And then further down in that same chapter, it says, The supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined, and all all decrees of councils, all opinions of ancient writers, or doctrines of men and private spirits are to be examined, and in whose sentence we are to rest can be no other but the Holy Spirit speaking in the Scriptures. The supreme judge of all matters of religion is, and finally, the Word of God. That alone has authority over us. Tradition, although good, must be situated underneath the Word of God. And our tradition must also always be open to scrutiny. Situating the scriptures under tradition and placing an emphasis on translating them into the vernacular led to another dominant principle of the Reformation. The recovery of the priesthood of all believers. You see, the the medieval church had made a sharp distinction between sacred and secular. Rather like 
modern evangelicals, the clergy worshipped while the laity were mere spectators. Not only did they have no access to the word of God in their own language, but increasingly much of the liturgy was in Latin, leaving only the homily to instruct them in the things of God. And there was a screen that was set up to separate the people from the clergy. And that became a fitting metaphor for the state of the church, cut off from their access to God, except through the mediation of the clergy or priests. But the reformers, they changed all that. They restored the word of God to its central role in the life of the church. They tore down the screen. They got rid of the altar and all the icons. And in its place, they put a pulpit in the center with the people gathered around them. And then they put a table in front of the pulpit, a plain table. They were showing the preeminence of preaching and changing the symbolism of the Eucharist from a sacrifice to a family meal. Driven by Scripture, they sought to situate the church as a mother that would nurture faith with only ministerial authority to declare the Word of God. Since Christ is the only mediator between God and man, they reconfigured the clergy to the biblical role of shepherd teachers and restored to the laity the role of a royal priesthood. Along these lines, they tore down the sharp distinction between sacred and secular, restoring dignity and honor to all lawful vocations. It wasn't just the priest or the monk that could honor God in a life of prayer. Luther said, the maid who sweeps her kitchen is doing the will of God just as much as the monk who prays. Not because she may sing a Christian hymn as she sweeps, but because God loves clean floors. Now, both the recovery of sola scriptura and the priesthood of all believers can go off in wrong directions and have drastic effect, which we are currently reaping the fruit of. Roman Catholics routinely point to this. And so it's helpful to be aware of them. First, the, the scripture that alone declares authoritatively on matters of faith and practice is never alone. It's not solo scriptura. It's sola scriptura. The rapid fracturing of the church into smaller and smaller denominations followed by the rise of non-denominationalism stems often from a misunderstanding of sola scriptura, especially here in America. Our roots have been more influenced by the Anabaptist radical reformers, some of who took a more revolutionary tract to reforming the church than the reformers. Some advocated pacifism, some rationalism, some over-spiritualized the faith, but all were driven by different interpretations of sola scriptura that completely rejected tradition as either irrelevant or dangerous. This led to lots of dangerous ideas of a privatized faith that's divorced from the guidance of the church. But the priesthood is not atomized. It's not as if we're not all connected together. Priesthood is certainly not mean popehood as if I get to stand over the Word of God and now determine what it says. All people must sit underneath the Word and allow the Word to interpret us. 
opening up the Scriptures to the people of God does not mean that our interpretations can go off in any direction we please, following our own fancies. We've all been in one of those small group Bible studies where someone disagrees and says, well, this is what it means for me. The me and Jesus overly individualistic faith does not take into account that Christ is restoring a people called variously his bride or the church, which has a corporate as well as individual status. So what? I've given you a rundown of the important historical moment and the doctrines that undergird it. And yes, it looks similar to the division over Jesus and John. But what does this have to do with us today? The very sad fact today is that we are in danger of abandoning two of the three tenets of the Reformation. Sola Scriptura and the priesthood of all believers. How so? Have you ever seen those clips of saints in China receiving a Bible for the first time? How they weep. I've, I've got like 30 English Bibles, at least. Different translations. We're, we're now up to about 50 English translations. I'm a champion of having it in the vernacular. I think that's wonderful. But I think we've moved to the other side. We have so many Bibles that we're indifferent to it. We are in danger of making the Word of God irrelevant. It has, as we add more and more translations, it's barely changed the trend of biblical literacy, which continues year after year to get less and less and less. And I'm not talking about the world. I'm talking about Christians who don't know their Bible, who have access to it in their pockets anywhere they go. And who will spend, on average, two hours a day on social media, but can't be bothered with 15 minutes in the Word of God. 15 minutes, and you can read the entire Bible in a year. 15 minutes a day. Do you not have 15 minutes to spare for life-giving Word of God? Your screen time suggests otherwise. The prophet Amos spoke of a day like this. He said, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine of bread, nor of thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. Now, the prophet Amos didn't say, I'm going to take away my words. He said, there's going to be a famine for hearing. They're not going to listen to you, Amos. They're going to have plenty of access to the word of God, but they won't care. It will be irrelevant to them. That's where we are right now. Do you know how many people suffered and died so that you could have access to the Word of God. Do you know that there are saints in Iran and China who would trade anything to have that? Don't devalue 
sola scriptura by not taking up the word and reading it. And I mean reading it personally. I mean reading it as a family. I mean reading it as a community. Coming together and having our conversations be in the word of the Lord. Because the word of Christ is dwelling in us. And it's, it's coming out in songs and hymns and spiritual songs. We can't help but be shaped by its words because we inhabit it. We live in his word. It's like somebody starving to death while living in a Walmart and having ready access to food. It's understandable when someone dies for lack of food. It's another thing when someone dies for lack of a desire to eat. That's sad. What would it take for you to treasure the word of God? What would it take for you to take up your Bible and read it like your life depended on it? I don't have much to offer you. I just have the message of the gospel. And it comes through the reading and the preaching of his word. We're at risk of abandoning the priesthood of all believers by outsourcing our faith, including discernment and wisdom to others. We just give it to them. In our culture, there has been a shift away from critical thinking towards relying on others to do our thinking for us. This leads to a narrow-minded approach where we choose beliefs and opinions that align with our preconceived notions. This is not only detrimental to our spiritual growth and understanding, but it also hinders the collective discernment and wisdom of the body of Christ. John seven forty. Through 52, we see a similar pattern among the religious leaders of Jesus' time. The people are divided in their opinions about Jesus, with some believing that he is the Christ, while others dismiss him as a fraud. The Pharisees and the chief priests, who were supposed to be the spiritual leaders and guides for the people, fell into the latter category. And instead of engaging in critical thinking and seeking wisdom from God themselves, they outsourced their discernment to others. They relied on hearsay and rumors about Jesus rather than seeking a personal encounter with him. When Nicodemus, one of their own colleagues, tries to reason with them and suggests that they give Jesus a fair hearing, they dismiss him as well. This outsourcing of faith not only blinded them to the truth, but also prevented them from experiencing the transformative power of encountering Jesus themselves. They were so entrenched in their own beliefs and traditions that they could not see beyond that. In our current culture, we see a similar trend where many people rely on social media influencers, celebrities, or even pastors to shape their beliefs and opinion for them. Instead of critically examining information or seeking God's wisdom themselves, they simply adopt whatever viewpoint aligns with their favorite personality and this siloed thinking leads to what we have which is polarization and division within society and even within the church we become more concerned with defending our chosen silo than seeking truth or engaging in dialogue with those who hold a different perspective as followers of christ we we need to resist this temptation to outsource our faith 
We are called to be a royal priesthood. Individuals who have direct access to God's wisdom through prayer and the study of His Word and through a a personal relationship with Jesus. We are called to think critically, to discern truth and to seek wisdom from the Holy Spirit like the Bereans. They heard what Paul said and then they went to the Scriptures to find out if it was true. No one ever spoke like this man is the understatement of a lifetime. When God came and took on flesh and made his dwelling among us, he spoke true truth. He spoke as one who had all authority as a creator to his creation. As a redeemer to those who came to save. He did not need for us to put him on trial. To weigh the evidence and then, and then come to our own judgment. But that is just what the religious leaders are doing. And so it has been down through the ages. Man has not sat under the word and allowed it to go to work on him. But he has sought to stand over it in judgment. And the reformers broke the shackles that had bound the word of God under all the accretions of tradition. And he gave it back to the church, to the saints. Not at all diminishing the role of the church or, or the necessity of ministers, but rather restoring Christ to his rightful role of great high priest. And the Spirit is the internal witness of the veracity of scriptures. That is their truthfulness. There was no need for the church to tell us that Jesus is the Christ. Not because it wasn't untrue, but because it was superfluous since our hearts Burn within us that it's true. Sola Scriptura does not render the church unnecessary, but it situates it properly as a creation of the Word. Since our faith is grounded in the Word of God rather than in the testimony of men, we must believe that Jesus is the Christ. So take up the word and read, not as a judge weighing evidence, but as thirsty souls seeking to have your soul satisfied with the word made flesh. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, we do not hunger and thirst enough for you. We have allowed all the privilege and the blessings that we have, like Israel coming into the promised land and reaping all the benefits of vineyards they didn't plant and houses they did not build. We have received the word of God and we have taken it for granted. We have the great privilege to come to your word every day and many of us struggle to do this. We don't know we're thirsty because we've hewn out for ourselves broken cisterns. We don't know we're hungry. We don't know that we're dying without your word unless you open our eyes to see, to see our need and that you draw us to yourself through your word so that we no longer stand over it in judgment, but we sit under it, allowing it to read us allowing it to interpret us 
allowing it to transform us to be more like Christ. This morning, as we, as we come to your table, prepare our hearts to receive your word. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. These emblems of bread and wine are visible words that make